Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Jane Smith. Jane is the Managing Director of Jointing Products Limited, a manufacturer of gasket paper materials. Jane, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Thank you for inviting me, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you, Jane. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less. And business leaders, governments having to really feel their way through this uncharted territory. Tell me, for somebody working within the manufacturing arena, such as yourselves, how has it been? working in a critical industry over the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge. It has extremely. Um, We've been able to keep running um, because of the size of the factory. Social distancing hasn't been much of a problem for us. Um, The challenge has been in the amount of work that's been coming through. Um, We supply to more than 50 countries in the world, so a lot of the countries have been in lockdown. Um, It's been quite difficult for us to continue uh, the process not so much so that we've been able to furlough. So yes, it's it's been some weeks we've been closed and some weeks we've managed to produce, but most of it without um, support from the government. And that's quite interesting as well that you haven't been able to fall back on that support, whereas a lot of businesses have, despite working in a key industry, because there are, there are going to be some issues, aren't there, in the sense that um, the timing of the furlough scheme has been extended. Of course, that's very good, but different industries are going to sort of feel the drop in demand at different times, aren't they? So what do you think the sort of immediate future of the industry is going to be? Do you anticipate that demand is going to sort of drop again or will it eventually pick up now that things are opening up again, do you think? I'm hoping it will eventually pick up. At the moment, we're starting to see some grassroots appearing. Uh, We've had an order from Thailand and an order from China. And I think the wave will start to to come back towards us again. I think it's going to be a difficult year um, across the board, the same for any other industry. Um, But I do hope that given I will probably put 12 to 18 months on the the timescale, that we'll start to see a semblance of new normal come back together. And let's hope we do start seeing the uh, the new normal uh, sooner rather than later, for sure. And with all going on, um, we have heard some fantastic stories during this uh, pandemic of how staff members, employees have really gone above and beyond during this period to keep things ticking over. Have they adjusted to this period quite well, do you think, in terms of how they've mustered their response? I ask that question simply because there's a renewed focus on mental health and well-being during this period as well. Yeah, um I actually lost my husband in March and um, it was quite devastating because only myself and my son could go to the funeral. But Mm. there was a huge neighbourhood community response to it, leaving candles outside um, and being there to wave me away. Um, It gave me a sense of idea of how I needed to deal with the problem at work as well. So I've tried to treat staff very compassionately and fairly. And we didn't just throw ourselves at the first available government support package. We actually made reasoned decisions and plans that we would protect the future of jointing and keep the company running. Um, so we've tried to make sure that we, we are very compassionate with the staff. We take their feelings into account and we have supported them, as I said, on full pay for periods where we haven't been able to run. Um, they've all been fantastic, I have to say. They've all been amazing. Um, and uh, when we are working, they've all thrown themselves into that to make sure that we can meet customer demand. 
Mm. And I offer my sincerest condolences uh, for your loss there um, as well, Jane. And it's good to hear as well that the uh, the response from uh, the workers has been uh, fantastic. Um, on the other hand, um, however, given that, of course, you've continued to work with social distancing in place, there's, of course, been a great deal of debate as to just how clear government guidance is with regards to social distancing, with regards to new COVID secure guidelines that are also going to be coming in very soon. Um, how have you found that per, on a personal uh, level? Do you think that it's been clear enough and you know what's expected of you? Um, I think it's been clear enough and I think I know what's expected of me. Uh, I find other people's interpretation of the facts to be different to mine. I think that's been the challenge. I've taken it very black and white and the principle is this is a terrible time. We do not want to infect people or loved ones around us with this with this virus. Um, but a lot of people do, and it, it's like probably links back to the mental health, as you said. They do feel mm. confined by it. They do find it a challenge, and clearly their way of coping with that is to find flexibility in the guidance to help their mental health and, and go out more. But personally, I haven't. I've tried to stick to the rules, and work has been the only place I've been to. And from leadership. Was, mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was um, it was in the interpretation of the guidance. I think they perhaps needed to do a few more uh, underpinning of, of those of those guidelines. No, I completely understand where you're coming from uh, there, Jane. Um, what I was going to ask as well is, from a leadership perspective, I can imagine there's been a degree of people management that's really had to come in during this phase as well, because um, there'll be people who are sort of taking quite well to continuing to work, and others may be a little bit more apprehensive about continuing to work on sites, for example. Um, have you found that sort of quite challenging, having maybe one or two sort of quite difficult conversations with people, or do you think you've sort of taken to that quite well? Um, I think staff have taken to it quite well. You're absolutely right. Some of them would prefer to be at home. Some of them absolutely want to be at work. But they recognise, um, I think because we've explained it well enough, that as well as dealing with the condition that we're dealing with, we've got to protect their jobs for the future. So um, I think it's been a good balance because rather than furloughing people for three weeks at a time, it has been just sending them home for a week, coming back for a week. So it's presented them all with a fairly balanced lifestyle. And it's sort of helped provide a little bit of reassurance, I can imagine, as well. And that's been much needed during this period. And there's been a lot of pressure on business leaders um, to provide that reassurance, even though there's yeah. so much uncertainty. And the reality is that the one running the business may not necessarily know too much more than those around them. So that's been another challenge um, as well. Yes, yes, I would agree with that. Uh, we've just tried to be fairly open with the communications um, we've had a good call tree in place to make sure that we've communicated regularly. Uh, and we've all been flexible as well. That's been another key of this. Is uh, I think I went around on the morning of one week saying we would be at home next week because there was no work. And within an hour, we'd had quite a big order and, and all plans had changed. But everybody's been happy to be flexible and that's been great. And of course, what COVID-19 has done as a whole has really put one of the big issues of our time into the shadows, and that, of course, is Brexit, no less. Yeah. Now, um, that has actually been continuing behind the scenes post-Brexit trade negotiations with the European Union, of course, and we are still no closer to knowing whether there will be a trade deal in place by the end of the year or whether or not the transition period will be extended, although we will know more about that later this month for the benefit of those tuning into this. Um, we are recording on uh, the 10th of June 2020, so by the end of this month, we will know whether or not that transition period will be going beyond December the 31st of this year. Um, you talk about Brexit quite a bit um, in the Parliamentary Review, in fact, uh, Jane, um, of course, Indispensable Guide to Best Practice. Um, and with that sort of going on uh, behind the scenes, um, that must be something else that you're sort of holding in the back of your mind for the future as well. Yes, definitely. 
and I think I said it in the article, it's a big burden to a small business. It doesn't matter if you employ 1,500 people or 15 as we do. It's still the same amount of information to absorb. Um, Dealing with COVID and Brexit at the same time, it's not a happy recipe at all. Um, I would like to hope that there is some sort of extension just to give us time to breathe after one crisis before we enter into what could be a very difficult time. It could also be very successful, but as you've pointed out, we don't actually know what it means yet. Exactly right. And um, it's one of the great variables with the projected economic recovery as well, isn't it? Because um, there's the hope that removing a second spike um, will help the economy recover to pre-pandemic levels within maybe a year, a year and a half. But with the um, added distraction of a no-Brexit trade deal, then that could also sort of throw another spanner in the works there. And I think business doesn't really want to see that in a way, does it? No, definitely not. Yeah, I think um, at this time, there needs to be some real uh, stability for sure. And um, if we do think about um, what the future might hold in the long term, uh, Jane, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, um, what do you envision the next sort of 12 to 18 months holding for yourself and for Jointeen? And what do you hope to achieve as we hopefully move through this pandemic, emerge from the other side, and then really begin to look to the long term future? I think one of the things we, we took on board as part of the COVID um, being at work plan was to reduce the amount of paperwork, which was something we'd always planned to do, but it forced us to accelerate it um, far greater pace than we'd expected. Um, I'd like not to go back to that one thing. Um, paperwork is, is an odd thing in this day and age. I'd like to make sure that we can move much more into um, electronic data collection. I've talked about the Internet of Things in the article as well. Is We've got mobile phones and devices that can connect to the Internet and exchange data. I'd like to really bring that forward into the business so that there's, there's less completion of forms, there's less raising of paperwork and documents, and, and we use the internet more and more. So that, that's my plan for the future. And I think that's one of the things that's really um, come out of this uh, sort of crisis, hasn't it? It's been a very difficult and a very tragic time, but it has forced the hand of business to really look to uh, modernise and to innovate and to automate as well. And it seems that's very much the case for Jointeen as well, ambitions to really start moving things uh, toward the online side of things just to help with that longevity. Yes, definitely. I mean, we've been making this product for about 100 years now. Um, It's almost like an old pair of slippers and you, you can get too comfortable in what you're doing. And this has very much forced us to, uh, I think the phrase is sharpen the pencil and, and have a look at what we're doing and what, whether there's actually a need for it and can we do things better. And I think it's going to be interesting uh, to see over the next few months what sort of new initiatives you're getting involved in um, as well, Jane. And, you know, I think given how informative it's been having you on the programme with us today, it would be great from a listener's perspective to catch up later down the line and just see what's going on behind the scenes and maybe just sort of reassess where we're at um, at that point as well in terms of the pandemic and the economy. I think that sounds a great idea. I'd love to. Thank you. I think it would be wonderful to have a retrospective a look at what we've said today, Jane. Um, absolutely fantastic. Um, as well, um, during the meantime, until we do touch base again, um, do take care and stay safe, most importantly, because we're certainly not out of the woods yet. And it has been a real pleasure having you on the, uh, the programme for sure. And I thank you again for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Scott. 
That was Jane Smith speaking, the Managing Director of Joint Team Products Limited. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Sir Andrew is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, but during his professional career, he became one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. So part of a very illustrious club, but he also racked up that many test victories that he became the England captain with the second highest number of test wins in history. Quite incredible. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, m- my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Rescott who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that 
thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean the, the catch at Trent Bridge was 
you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and without all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, 
they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself... Um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be 
the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well, you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process and and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the, uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.